Good morning, guys. Um, let me pray for us before we uh, hear from God in His Word this morning. Uh, Father, we ask for your help this morning as we uh, come before you and worship. We, uh, we long to hear from you. We need to hear from you. Um, I pray that your word would go forth and it would reorient our hearts. I pray that it would reorder uh, the desires of our hearts so that you may be in the first place. I pray that you would both challenge and comfort your people through your word, uh, through this passage in Second Thessalonians 3.16. And uh, may the Lord Jesus be glorified in this place. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. So we are, um, we're in a series, an interesting series on, uh, we've called it the three sixteens. So these are significant chapter 3, verse 16 passages in Scripture. And they all say, not all of them, but the ones that we're looking at at least, they all say something profound about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And today we come to Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. And uh, Tina just read it out for us. It says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Um, and chances are you've heard this before, uh, probably at the end of one of our worship services. It's an often used benediction. So you've heard it um, before, but, but don't leave yet because it's, it's going to be a sermon this time. Um, and this benediction or this passage talks about peace. And peace is one of those words that almost everyone likes. If you don't like peace, uh, what's wrong with you? <laughs> almost everyone prefers peace to war. We want peace. We don't want strife. Uh, this week, I googled uh, peace during the holidays, and I came across five tips for finding peace during this Christmas season, and I want to share them with you. Number one, let go of your expectations. Number two, don't be afraid to say no. Number three, set boundaries in gift giving. Number four, focus on self-care, not self-indulgence. And number five, be open about what you are feeling. And I think that's pretty good advice, but there's nothing particularly Christian about that advice. I just Googled it. It just came up. What does it mean that we have this announcement in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, the Lord of peace? Because I think it'd be really easy to just skip over this verse as just another benediction. You know, just the way that Paul finishes off a lot of his letters with, you know, with grace or peace or grace and peace. It sounds... Like it sounds comforting, it sounds warm, but what does it really mean? Well, the placement of this verse, this benediction, which is a prayer at the end of this short letter, it's very deliberate. It's actually the perfect way to wrap up what Paul has been writing uh, about to the Thessalonians with these last words, the Lord of peace. And it's actually the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is called the Lord of peace. And what I want to do today is see in this letter uh, why Jesus is the Lord of peace in at least three different ways. So number one, uh, firstly, Jesus is the Lord of peace because he protects us from the world. That's, what, that's the first thing that we see here. When Paul ends this letter by praying uh, that the Lord of peace himself would give you peace, 
when he says that, he means, in a sense, protection from the world. And here's why. You need to understand the situation that the Thessalonians were facing. So if you go back to chapter 1, um, chapter 1, verse 3, this is what it says. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, uh, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. And uh, Paul says why he boasts about them. He says, For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So the church in Thessalonica was being persecuted. People were being afflicted. They were facing opposition as Christians. There were people in their lives, right, in the community who were afflicting them. Uh, they don't like the fact that they're Christians. So, you know, think about Sydney just walking down the street and, you know, someone will come up to you and ask you, hey, are you a Christian? And if you say yes, they will do something. Maybe they'll cuss at you or scoff at you or, or worse, maybe they'll beat you up. This is the kind of opposition that they were facing. Um, it's the same opposition that Paul himself was facing. So if you come back to chapter 3, our passage for today, in verse 1, Paul writes about his affliction. He says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we, right, Paul and his associates, may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So at this time, the church in Thessalonica, it's only about two years old. It's quite a young church. Um, Paul has planted this church, and Paul has already seen this church experience some really intense persecution and opposition. Uh, if you go to Acts 17, which is the account of some of these early first churches, you see people being physically dragged out of their homes for being Christian. They're being beaten up. Their lives and their livelihoods are being threatened. This is not a joke. And the Thessalonian church is facing this same kind of opposition now. And so in the midst of that, Paul prays, the Lord of peace be with you. The Lord of peace reign in the midst of your persecution and affliction. He gives this benediction. And a benediction is really just a prayer. That's all it is. Now, how is this peace going to be with them? when they're being beaten up, when they're being dragged from their homes. Here's Paul's logic, right? You go back to chapter 1, verse 6, and this is what Paul says as he's addressing this persecution. He says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, Think about this picture. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. So what Paul is saying here is this. When he's talking about the Lord of peace, he's thinking about this Lord of peace who will come back at the end of all things, at the end of the age, and he will also actually be the Lord of justice, right? Justice. That's the picture here. Jesus coming back to dish out justice. And, you know, every single one of us has a desire for justice. 
when you're driving in the car and the person in front of you is stopped at a red light and you can see through your windscreen that they're kind of looking at their phone and you're like, no, 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 don't do it. And the light turns green and they don't move. So you honk your horn and just as it turns yellow, that's when they go, that's when they turn and then you don't make it through. All the, the desire, the, the burning desire there for justice, right? Or when you're on the phone with customer service and you're going through a maze-like phone tree that branches off into five different numbers and you never actually make it to a human being. You want justice. Now, those are just mild annoyances that you know, are real, but they're not lasting injustices. Every single one of us wants justice, and the Bible doesn't tell you, well, shame on you. You shouldn't want justice. Just be more patient. This is part of being made in God's image. I think there are times where our desire for justice can be out of proportion, and it can turn into vengeance, a desire for revenge, and that's when it becomes sin. But that's true of any desire that becomes out of proportion. Any good desire, when it becomes an over-desire, it becomes sin. So in principle, our desire for justice is right and it's good. God is a God of justice. And one of the promises he, he gives to his people is, look, I see and I know everything and I will bring justice. No one else may see, no one else may know, but God sees and God knows. And for the Lord of peace to reign in your life, think about what Paul is trying to say to the Thessalonians. It means, hey guys, have confidence that one day he will come back and he'll right every wrong thing, every wrong thing. That's what it means on the one hand, but also means you are perfectly right to pray, God, would you deliver me from these unjust circumstances? Would you deliver me from this affliction and these beatings? Paul prays for it in our passage. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way, not just at the end of times, at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. You can pray that prayer. God, deliver me. This is so unfair. This is unjust. I need this peace. And I just wonder, do you ever pray for that kind of peace? Or do you read this passage and just treat it as a benediction at the end of a worship service? Do you take this kind of peace seriously? Do you pray for it? I think there are two dangers when it comes to prayer. Number one, praying like we are in charge. And number number two, praying like God is not in charge. Do you know what I mean by that? The first danger, um, praying like we are in charge, maybe will cause us to pray things like, God, if you don't do this for me, like I'm, I'm going to be disappointed. If you don't do this to me, I am, you know, I'm going to fall away. The first danger, we have to pray, not my will, but yours be done. That says I'm not in charge. But the second danger, I think, is actually more common for us, that God isn't in charge. We don't ask boldly in prayer. Sometimes we don't believe that God is in charge. We pray as if God can't really do something, as if praying won't really do anything. 
when we share with each other about something hard that we're going through and you say to the other person, hey, can you pray for me? Or if we say to someone else who's going through something tough, hey, I'll pray for you. Like, what's really going on inside there? Are you thinking, yeah, I'll just say something comforting. It can't hurt to say it. It won't hurt to pray. Or do you have the attitude, this is the best and most effective thing that I can do right now. I have no idea what to say to this person. I have no counsel. But I can pray. I can pray for this person because God loves us and he hears us. I can pray with all that I am hurting with. I can pray with all that I'm struggling with. Paul is a guy who suffered a shipwreck. That's hard for us to picture because none of us travel on ships like that anymore. But basically he was traveling on the sea. His ship collapsed or it it sunk and he was stranded. Um, And then he suffered beatings and stonings. We also don't go through that anymore. But it's where people throw rocks at you, literally. And he writes to Christians who are suffering. And he doesn't offer sentimental phrases. He doesn't offer these half-hearted encouragements. He doesn't say, hey, I'll pray for you. He, He says, I pray that the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And that's a good prayer. That's a really, really good prayer. That is something that you can pray for others. It's, very, it's really simple, but it's something you can pray for others. It's something that you can pray for yourself, for this Lord of peace himself to be with you or with someone else at all times. It's a protection from the world. But secondly, Jesus, the Lord of peace, leads us to unity and obedience in the church. That's what we learn. Unity and obedience in the church. So there are two big internal issues in this church and the the Thessalonian church. Uh, The external, sorry guys, the external issue we just talked about is they're getting all kinds of persecution, affliction, people are beating them up and just, you know, persecuting them for being Christian. But there are internal issues too, like any church. Any church has internal issues, so do they. There are two big ones here. The first is that there are some false teachers who are saying that, hey, guys, Jesus has already come back. There are literally people in the church who are saying that. I want to read chapter 2, verse 1 with you. This is what Paul says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So then he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul's pleading with him, hey guys, like, I told you these things already. Jesus is not coming back until the Antichrist is revealed. And for us, when we hear that, it seems like, hey, this is a strange thing to be confused about. It's pretty clear, right? Paul's been pretty clear. For us, it's pretty clear in Scripture. But some people in the church are thinking, well, Jesus has (coughs) resurrected in my lifetime, And if he's done that, what if he's already come back? 
and we just haven't realized it yet. And then false teachers come along and they lead them astray even more. So that's what's been happening. That's one internal issue. The second internal issue is that some people were disorderly in the church and they showed this disorderly behavior in particular by not working. By not working. What does that mean? Chapter 3, verse 6. Now we, <coughs> now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we are with you, we will give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Thank you. So what's happening here is there were some in the church in their midst, some people who were refusing outright to work. And it's actually very connected to that first internal issue uh, that we talked about where people were confused about when Jesus was coming back. Because if you think to yourself, Jesus has already returned and we're in some kind of resurrection state, we're in some kind of new heavens and new earth, then why do I need to work? Why keep working? There's nothing more for God to, to judge, nothing more for God to do. We're already in our long-awaited reward. Why do we need to work? That's kind of what was happening here. But here's the thing. Work was present in Eden before the fall. And so, we're going to work in heaven. Now, don't uh, be too disappointed. Don't sigh. It's going to be good work. It's not going to have thorns and thistles and sweat. We're going to be busy with things. And the importance of hard work is stressed in Scripture, in Proverbs. And Paul talks about it. So what does this mean with the Lord of Peace? Well, it means in order for there to be peace in the church community, which is threatening to be divided by some who are refusing to work, it means, verse 12, we command such persons to work and earn a living. Now, I want to be clear here. Paul's not talking about kids. He's not talking about little children. Hey, go get your kids to, to work. He's not talking about the elderly. He's not talking about the sick or the widows who have little access to make a living for themselves. He's talking about those people who are simply unwilling to work. And obviously, there are situations where you're out of work for a time and you're looking, right? There are different seasons and different variables of life. But Paul is talking about the people here who just flat out refuse to work when they can work. And he's saying that is not good for the peace, for the unity of the community. It is not good for your family. It's not good for the church inside. It's not good for the witness of the church outside. And Paul says, if you're able to work, go and find a way to work. So in verse 14, Paul proposes a remedy. So if you look at verse 14 with me in chapter 3, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. So here is a proper use of shame. 
because we tend to think of shame as just bad. No, don't ever shame anyone. Like that's, you know, don't be that person. We shouldn't ever shame anyone. Shame is always bad. But actually, shame is not always bad. Shame is a complex emotion. It's bad when it's misplaced. It's bad when you're ashamed for something that wasn't your fault. If maybe something, someone did something to you. It's bad when you're ashamed when you're forgiven for what you've done. And you should no longer be ashamed of that. But in Paul's letters, shame often serves a godly and good purpose because it points us away from shameful behaviors, behaviors which we really should be ashamed about, and it points us towards godliness. And so this morning, I want to say this. If you're feeling shame for something, because sometimes that's the case, you come to church, you hear a sermon, and you hear the Word of God, and it it kind of stabs a bit at your conscience. It, 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 it tinges away at your heart. And if you're feeling shame for something this morning, I want to ask you, don't just bury it. Don't say, I shouldn't feel that. Think about it. And consider talking to a mature Christian. Consider talking to one of the elders. Or if you're a woman, one of their wives. So you can understand whether this shame is misplaced or it's a good kind of shame if it's directing you to a better way of living and to find forgiveness in Christ. None of us should just sit in shame or bury it under something else. Now, understandably, um, you know, when Paul says, these guys who aren't working, shame them. <laughs> it doesn't feel like peace to the ones being shamed. But it's a way of peace for the whole church. That's, that's Paul's point. If we are faithful, if we are a healthy church, if you are faithful, if you are a genuine Christian, there will be times when we say and do things to each other that other people will feel like it is mean and unloving or unchristian. Now, that's not a license for you to go to the person just come up in your mind afterwards and just unload on them afterwards. It's not a license for you to criticize people and retaliate, to speak out of hurt. But let me say it again. If we are faithful, healthy Christians in a faithful, healthy church, there will be times when you say the right thing and you're doing the right thing and the people receiving it, to them it will feel like the very opposite of peace. You know, it's why... Your elders will reach out to you, and if necessary, they'll confront you if you exhibit ungodly behavior. Whether you've committed adultery or you've been lax in your attendance, it might involve a conversation where they actually bring up that ungodly behavior, because this is a way to peace. See, Paul's prayer for peace, it doesn't entail passivity. I think this is such a big mistake many people make. They think peace in the church means everyone gets along. No one does anything to rock the boat, just move along. And that's really frustrating when there is injustice. It's frustrating when there's something that needs to be done and someone says, don't rock the boat, don't rub anyone the wrong way. I mean, I think sometimes that's right. Paul says in Second Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that break quarrels. You know, there are some topics that are just dumb, that are foolish, 
and damaging to pursue, and you drop it. But there are so many times where the way to peace requires actually effort and exertion and loving, gentle conversation. So many times where the way to peace requires shaming someone by bringing up their ungodly behavior. This is what it means to be God's people. And Paul's prayer, at the end of the day, it's actually very hopeful. You know, he says, um, now, and look again there at verse 16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And so even the benediction, even the prayer, is hopeful that the people who are idle, the people who are not working, will get to work. That the ones who need to be ashamed will be ashamed that they'll be warned and they'll come back, that this is not going to split apart the church. The Lord's peace be with you all. And thirdly and finally, um, and this is going to be very brief, the Lord of peace comforts us in the gospel. So the Lord of peace comforts us in the gospel. The ultimate peace is to know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself comforts us in the gospel. Uh, the peace that matters the most is not world peace. It's a peace that he secured on the cross when he died for sinners. It's a cosmic peace. It's peace with God. It's peace that surpasses all understanding. It's peace that leads to eternal life. And that's what you hopefully hear every Sunday here about that peace. That's what we sing and celebrate about at Christmas. And the peace that we need, the peace that you need, because I'm sure life is chaotic, I'm sure life is busy, the peace that you're looking for so desperately, it won't come to you through controlling and taming the busyness of your life around you. That's very temporary. Controlling and shaping your circumstances. You need peace with God. The peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that leads to eternal life. And this peace, it doesn't reorder what's outside of you. It reorders what's inside of you. The Lord of peace himself has come to us. Eternal comfort is here. The Lord of peace spilt his blood on a cross and he died so that you could have peace with God. The Lord of peace is the bridge that connects us to God. The gap, the separation that we have with God apart from Him is honestly too much to bear. Like You can try to deal with it in so many different and other ways. But here the Lord of peace Himself has come to us to bring that gap to a close. So, I want to end with this. What will you do today? Because the gospel um, offers peace, and you need peace. What are you going to do today? Are you going to keep and trying to tame your life around you? It's, I can't tell you what to do, but I'd just like to ask you to consider, is that really doing anything? What is the kind of peace that you need?
peace with God, peace that bridges the gap between you and God, the distance, the, the chasm, peace that surpasses all understanding, peace that leads to eternal life. So even if you were to die today, it would be okay. Give him glory this Christmas, like the multitude of angels who praised him, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Receive his comfort in the gospel this morning. Um, and the way that we're going to do that this morning is we're going to uh, take communion because the Lord of peace himself is with us this morning, and he calls us a new community. That's what we are here. We have peace with God, if you're a Christian, and we're invited to a meal, right, with Jesus. Not a ritual, not some kind of thing that we have to just tick off. This is a covenant meal with Jesus, and this morning, um, He invites you to this meal, not me. He invites you to come and taste the hope of peace, the hope of peace that you can get as a forgiven sinner, as God's child. So we are going to take communion in a sec. Um, and before we do that, I just want to uh, give a warning. And here's a warning. Uh, it's a warning that the Apostle Paul gives to us in First Corinthians. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So, to everyone here, examine yourself today. Examine yourself now. Do you have unrepentant sin? Is there a unrest in you? Well, I want to say this. There is grace. There is more grace than your sin. So repent and be forgiven and then come to the table. And if you are not a believer, then I think that just means you haven't repented and you won't repent yet. So please don't come to the table. If you come to the table in an unworthy manner, if you come to the table without knowing what is happening here, without knowing who invites you to partake in this meal, then you drink judgment upon yourself. So I'm going to ask you uh, to come by rows uh, to the table, and um, you can take each of the elements and then return to your seats.